So let me just get this off my chest because I've been struggling all week in how to say it, and so I just need to say it. Here it goes. God is not passionate about you at all. There, I said it. I got it off my chest, and maybe I offended you. Maybe you're giving me the side eye. However, bear with me for 40 minutes or so, and please don't throw any tomatoes at me or any dead cats. I think they did that with George Whitfield when he was preaching. They would throw dead cats at him. Don't throw any dead cats at me. Please don't think that I'm a heretic. Please don't leave the church. If you promise and pinky swear that you will not do those things, then I will explain what I mean. But first, I want to tell you this again. God is not passionate about you at all. This is actually good news. Why? Because God is without passions. As the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith states, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. God is impassable. Recall what we've seen so far in our series on the attributes of God as it relates to the prefixes that you see on words like the letters I am or I in. The I am negates what follows. So God is impassable, meaning he is without passions. And so here's a definition of impassibility from both James Dolezal and Thomas Wynandy, both of whom have written extensively on this and have been a source of information for me and for this sermon. So I'm relying heavily on both of these men, especially James Dolezal. He says impassibility means that God undergoes no effective changes and that he feels no action of creatures upon himself. And then Thomas Wynandy says, impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, whether enacted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. Okay, so we are in very deep waters today if you have not figured that out yet. And by the looks on some of your faces, you're like, give me a life jacket. We're in deep waters, but we need to go here because this is good news. Here's what it means very simply. And then we'll get to our big idea and then unpack the doctrine of God's impassibility as we go along. God's impassibility means that God doesn't experience emotional change in any way. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't experience emotional highs and emotional lows. He doesn't have moods. 
God doesn't get hangry so that he needs a Snickers. You've seen those commercials, right? You're not you if you're hangry, if you're hungry and angry. But if you get a Snickers, then suddenly the real you shows up, all nice and stuff. I saw a meme this morning that said, let me apologize for what I said to you when I was hungry. (laughs) God never gets hangry. He's never in a bad mood. You can't put him in a bad mood. God isn't acted upon by any outside force or even a force within himself. As you've heard me say many times in this series, he is who he is. And because he is who he is, and because he is impassable, then God loves you with a never starting, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And if you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, you know where I got our big idea today. And you know that I added the words never starting. God will never Stop loving you because he never started loving you. As Gerhardus Voss, a dead Dutch theologian, said, the reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. Voss was reflecting on Jeremiah 31.3, which says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So the reason God can't and won't stop loving you is because he never began loving you. Let that sink in. God has always loved you in Christ in eternity past. So God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. And that's true because of the doctrine of impassibility. And that's the undomesticated attribute of God that we're going to be discussing today. And keep in mind, when, we, when we're discussing and thinking about God's attributes, remember, they are undomesticated, meaning we cannot bring God down to our level. He is undomesticated. Remember that as we discuss his impassibility, because he is who he is, and we don't get a say in that whatsoever. Okay, here's our main passage for today. Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 14. It's in the Old Testament. I love hearing those pages turn. Hosea 14, the Lord is speaking to his wayward, fickle people, and through the prophet Hosea, he tells them that he loves them simply because he loves them. He loves them just because. Hosea 14, look at verse 4 and hear the word of the Lord. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God loves us freely. He loves us with all his heart, without limits, without bounds. He loves us perfectly. He loves us Abundantly. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated as freely in Hosea 14.4 is also used in Psalm 68.9 to describe abundant rain. So God's love is like this torrential downpour. It's abundant. He loves us freely, abundantly, perfectly. And he loves us without any sort of outsized cause that leads him to love us. 
God simply and freely loves his people just cause. Just cause he does. And so we can't cause God to love us because he just loves us. It's who he is. He is love. Like Bonnie Raitt sang in her 1991 hit song, I can't make you love, I can't make you love me. Anybody know that song? I can't make you love me. That's what God's impassibility means. You can't make God love you. You can't make God anything. So you actually could sing the title to Bonnie Raitt's song to Jesus. You could say, I can't make you love me. That's what impassibility means. Here's a longer, more formal definition. Impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, whether enacted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. More specifically, impassibility means that God does not experience suffering and pain and thus does not have feelings that are analogous to human feelings. Divine impassibility follows upon his immutability in that since God is changeless and unchangeable, his inner emotional state cannot change from joy to sorrow or from delight to suffering. His feelings are not analogous to our feelings. Why? Because he is God and we are not. But where do we get the doctrine of God's impassibility? Because the last time I checked, there isn't a verse in the Psalms that says, let everything that hath breath praise the impassable Lord. Like I've mentioned in previous sermons, we infer this doctrine from the text. The scriptures imply that God is impassable. We deduce from God's word that he is impassable. But what does that word even mean? Because I grew up in the church and I never once heard that God is impassable. I'm not sure I heard it in seminary too, to be honest. And it has fallen out of use in modern times. Probably around, I think, the 1800s, it just started slipping off the statements of faith of churches. But church history is full of God's impassibility. You will find the doctrine of God's impassibility in the early church writings, in the medieval church, into the Protestant Reformation, and beyond. Even the Catholic church holds to divine impassibility. And so all the creeds and confessions that we have in church history from Catholic to Reformed to Lutheran to Anglicans to Baptists, Calvinists, and Arminians. Jacob Arminius affirmed the doctrine of impassibility, believe it or not, and some Calvinists today don't. So from Arminians to Calvinists, all of these groups affirm God's impassibility. It's been basic Christianity throughout all of church history. As James Dolezal says, God's impassibility is one of those meat and potatoes doctrine. It's basic Christianity. And so when you get all these traditions agreeing on a particular doctrine, then you know something's up, right? Everybody agrees. You know there's probably truth in that statement. 
if this vast array of denominations and associations, etc., agree. When I said earlier that God is not passionate about you, hear me out, okay? This is very important. Because some of you, I think, are like, I'm not, I'm not buying this. Hear me out, okay? Maybe you're not that way. When I said earlier that God is not passionate about you, I am not saying, not saying that God doesn't care about you, that God doesn't love you, that God is not interested in you and what's happening in your life and in your heart. Obviously, God does care. He does love. All you have to do is look at the cross and you see evidence of God's care and love for you. He gave his own son up for sinners like us so that we would benefit. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So obviously God loves us. Obviously he cares about us. So impassibility does not mean that God doesn't care It doesn't mean that God is aloof or distant or uninterested or uncaring or devoid of affections. Impassibility doesn't mean that God is glued to his iPhone and just scrolls through Twitter all day, completely uninterested in his children and his creation. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, impassibility actually means that God couldn't care more. Impassibility means that God cannot care any more than he does care. He cares boundlessly. There is no increase in his care for us ever. There is no increase in his love for us ever. God cannot care for us any more than he does because he cares for us fully and completely and perfectly. We cannot make God care any more for us than he does. We cannot improve his emotional state in any way. He simply is who he is. So let's unpack some terms here, okay? We tend to think of passion as something you really care about, right? You're passionate about something. You, you really care about it. For instance, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm passionate about them. They are my team, even though they still choke in the playoffs every year. If they even make the playoffs, right? I am passionate about them. I care if they don't win the playoffs and don't advance to the Super Bowl. I care that they traded wide receiver Amari Cooper to the Cleveland Browns last week. I care because I'm impassionate. I'm passionate because I care. And I experience emotional change within when I watch the Dallas Cowboys play. There are highs and there are many, many, many lows. They are an agent who does something to cause change in me, a change in my passions. But that's not how we use the word passion when we are talking about God. And that's not what the confessions throughout church history and theologians mean when they say that God is without passions. When we say that God is impassable or without passions, 
We are not saying that he doesn't care. We are saying that his emotions do not go up and down like my emotions when it comes to the Dallas Cowboys. In other words, God doesn't experience emotional highs and lows. He doesn't experience emotional ups and downs from anything inside himself or from anything outside himself the way a Dallas Cowboys fan does. And let me tell you, the Dallas Cowboys cause their fans to experience emotional change like anger and rage and frustration and sadness. And did I mention anger and rage? Our English word passion comes from the Greek and Latin words patior or passio. The roots of these words in Greek are pot. We get the word pathos or pathos from that. Pos, we get the word pasco from that. In Latin, it's pot, patior, or pos, pasio. We get our English words like sympathy from this. Compatible, compassion. These are all roots of the Greek and Latin word for passion. Passion means to suffer or to submit to or to undergo. And so when you have sympathy for a person or your, your compassion for them, you are undergoing the suffering that they are experiencing with them. You're saying, I'm with you and undergoing what you are experiencing. So passion means to suffer or to submit to or to undergo. You've heard of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? Was that about Jesus' passion and his love for fish or walking trails in Israel? No, it was a movie about the suffering of Jesus, the, what, the, what he underwent, the undergoing of what he, he endured as he went to the cross, what he suffered. So passion is a state of being that you enter into by undergoing something. Passion is not so much about the emotional results, like how I feel when I watch football, but about what caused these emotions and feelings, i.e. the Dallas Cowboys, the feelings that I undergo as I watch football. We actually get our word patient from these Greek and Latin roots, pos and pot. Like when you go to the doctor, you are a patient, a potty ent, passion entity. You're an entity that is experiencing and undergoing passion. You are a patient who goes to the doctor. You are a potty ent, an entity that undergoes passion. And so you go to the doctor and you wait and you have to be what? Patient. The the word is related to the same. It's the same idea. You undergo, you submit to, you suffer the passage of time until they call your name, and then you, as a patient, go and see your doctor. As a patient, you see the doctor, and you undergo the doctor's care. So you suffer, you submit to, you undergo his care. He is the one that causes you to experience emotional change as you receive the diagnosis. So when we speak about God's impassibility, passion is not about the intensity of motions. It's about actualization by undergoing something, becoming something as you undergo something. 
this change within. Passion happens when we are acted upon by another agent that produces change in us. The Dallas Cowboys are this agent outside of me that produce an emotional change within me when I suffer as I watch them play. Passable creatures undergo change. God doesn't because he is immutable. Therefore, he isn't passable. And therefore, he really is the only one worth worshiping because he never changes. He never experiences change. We talked about that last week when we said that God is immutable. He is really the only one worth worshiping. Isn't it comforting to you that the God you worship is immutable and that he is not an emotional wreck? I'm an emotional wreck sometimes. And some of you are too. I don't want a God who is an emotional wreck. There's actually a verse in Acts 14 where Paul talks about how we are passable beings and God is not, therefore he alone should be worshipped. I'm going to read it to you in the King James Version because it translates it the best. And here's the context. Paul and Barnabas, by God's power, have healed a lame man, and then the crowds want to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods. And so they're ready to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they say, no, no, don't do that. So let me read it to you. Acts 14, 14 to 15. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of that they wanted to worship them, They rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. The Greek word here for like passions is homoipathos. You can hear the word pathos in there, can't you? These Greek and Latin roots. Paul and Barnabas are saying to the crowd, don't worship us. We are just like you. We are of like passions. We are passable creatures like you. Things outside of us create change in us, so don't worship us. Instead, worship the living God, the impassable one who is not like us and who created everything. God is not like us, and that is a good thing. Let's just let that hang in the air for a second. God is not like us, and that is a good thing. So impassibility means that we don't actualize any emotional change in God. And so all of our sins, which are many, let that hang in the air for a moment. All of our sins, which are many, don't produce change in God. Now hear me out, okay? This is important too. That does not mean that God doesn't care when we sin And that he just says, yeah, whatever. You guys just do whatever you want to do. Doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that God doesn't hate your sin. He does. It just means that your sin does not stir up God's hatred of sin. So God cannot have any states of being produced in him by causes operating upon him. In other words, we do not stir up 
or produce God's hatred of sin. It is his nature to be opposed to sin because he is holy and he is just. And we do not stir up or produce God's love for us because it is his nature. He is love. In fact, God is really not loving. He is love. Do you see the difference? It's his nature. It's who he is. He is love. He is righteousness. He is justice. And these are not modes or moods or states of being that we cause him to become by our own actions. This is just who he is. James Dolezal is helpful. He says this. God will variously manifest his love over time and space to different persons relative to their moral and spiritual condition. But God's opposition to sin doesn't rise and fall. The demonstration of his opposition to sin rises and falls. He has removed the demonstration of his opposition to sin from you because of Christ Jesus. But he is not less opposed to sin. He has shown you love that he didn't show you before, but he didn't become more loving when he gave his love to you. He simply spread or distributed his love, but he didn't get more love. So we are not agents who produce emotional change in God. If we did, if we did then God would be on an emotional roller coaster, wouldn't he? If you just took one of us in the way we live, we would send God on an emotional roller coaster. Now think of all of humanity. We obey, we disobey, we care, we don't care, we pray, we don't pray, we read our Bible, we don't read our Bible. And God, if he is a passable being, if he can experience emotional change by us, then God is on an emotional roller coaster. And he's nauseous and he's about to vomit because we have him experience emotions back and forth and up and down. Again, this does not mean that God doesn't care about us. He gave us Jesus. Of course he cares. Scripture says he cares. He has affections. He loves. He delights. The question at hand is this. Are there states of being that are caused to be in God? Can we cause these emotional states of being to happen in God? And I think the answer from Scripture and church history is no. We do not cause these states of being in God. He is not our patient, our patient. God's relationships do not put him on an emotional roller coaster because he is not our patient. And Paul talks about this in Acts 17, preaching on Mars Hill. Let me read it to you, Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Greek word here for served is therapuo. You probably can guess what English word we get from the Greek word therapuo, right? It's therapy. God is not our patient, our patient, who needs therapy or help from us. He does not undergo therapy with us. He does not submit to us. He is not served by us in any way. He needs nothing from us. He is not therapied by us. 
as we saw last week, God is immutable. He does not change. He cannot change. Therefore, he cannot experience emotional change. But that does not mean that God is cold. It does not mean that he is indifferent or static or unmoved. He loves and he cares to the extreme. He loves and cares perfectly. He is infinite love and care. He is fullness of care. It's not that God lacks intensity in his care and love of us. It's that he is boundless in his care and love for us. Passions come and go. That's why God is impassable because his emotions do not come and go. His love and care is actually boundless. It's full. It's massive. It's maximum. It's most. As Kevin DeYoung says, if you pull at the string of immutability, and I would argue impassibility is of the same thread, you unravel a ball of theological problems. Suddenly you have a miserable God the unhappiest being in the universe as he shares in the suffering of all his creatures. When you lose the biblical teaching, I, the Lord, do not change, you start to lose everything. I can't stress this enough. To be impassable is not to be passionless. To be immutable is not to be motionless. God is always active, always dynamic, always relational. In fact, it is because God is so completely full of action that he cannot change. He is love to the maximum at every moment. He cannot change because he cannot possibly be any more loving or any more just or any more good. God cares for us, but it is not a care subject to spasms or fluctuations of intensity. His kindness is not capable of being diminished or augmented. So although God does not undergo changes in his emotional state as humans do, he is nevertheless utterly passionate in his compassion, mercy, joy, and displeasure. God is so dynamic, so active, that he cannot change to be any more active or dynamic. God's immutability is not opposed to his vitality. It is the guarantee of his vitality. In other words, God loves us at full volume. Or you could say God's love is turned up to 11 and it stays there. His love is maximum in all that he is. His love is not at 95%, and then you sit down to read the book of Leviticus, and then all of a sudden his love shoots up to 100%. They're like, they're reading Leviticus. My love just went, right? His love is already at 100%. Your quiet times do not make God love you more, and they don't make him love you any less. God loves you with a never starting, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God loves you, but not passionately, meaning you are not the outside agent that makes God love you. God is not the entity that undergoes passion in this relationship. He is not your patient, your patient. He loves you just because he loves you because he is love. If God loved you passionately, the way we view passion, then he would love you finitely and he would only hate sin finitely instead of infinitely. 
Only impassable love and only impassable goodness is unbounded in its opposition to wickedness and unbounded in its love of its creatures. If God loved you passionately, then something would have to cause him to love you. However, he doesn't love you with a caused love, but an is love because he is love. If he loved us passionately, then his emotions would be all over the place because we give him reasons to be emotionally all over the place. We sin all the time. God would be on this roller coaster of love if he loved us passionately. Instead, he loves us perfectly. We're talking not about God's passions, we're talking about his perfections. So because God is impassable, he cares for us and loves us perfectly without needing something or someone to increase and increase that care and increase that love. But impassibility also means that God couldn't care more. He literally could not add any more care or any more love to his being. As Thomas Wynandy says, it is impossible for the Trinity to be more loving for the persons of the Trinity possess no self-actualizing potential to become more loving. Now, of course, our actions and our sins and our behavior and our rebellion are the occasions in real time where God does two things. One, he demonstrates his holy opposition to sin. We saw that with King Saul last week. And two, he demonstrates his mercy and grace. God responds in real time and he opposes sin like we saw with King Saul. And he also has mercy on repentant sinners in real time. But those occasions are not the causes in God. Our sin does not cause God to hate sin. He already does. Our obedience does not cause God to love us anymore. He already does. Otherwise, you would have to say, my sin caused God to hate sin more, or my obedience caused God to love me more. And who's the star in that show? You are. You are the person that made God become something. That's why Elihu, in the book of Job, brings up the doctrine of God's impassibility. Listen to Elihu because he's the most reasonable one in all these conversations in the book of Job. He's the one who affirms God's impassibility. Job 35, 6 through 8. He says to Job, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him or against Yahweh, against the Lord? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. Elihu is basically saying, is saying this to Job. Do you think your sin causes a change in God? Do you think your obedience causes a change in God? Silly Job. Tricks are for kids, no. Silly Job, your sin will hurt other men like you, but not God. You are not an agent that causes God to experience passions. That works on your fellow man, but not on Yahweh. Elihu is saying, we don't make God anything, either by our sin or by our obedience. God is love to the maximum. He can't be any more loving than he is. There are no fluctuations or spasms or jerks in his love for us. And he hates sin to the maximum too. We can't make him hate sin more. 
That's why the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession also describes God this way. He is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. He's most in all of his attributes. Love and compassion, sweet virtues of God that we hold near and dear are not true of God as a result of being acted on by someone or something else. Nothing else and no one else can cause such virtues to exist in God. Impassibility means that God's love needs no activation. God is not like an old car that hasn't been driven in a while and kind of needs to be warmed up. He's not that car that needs to be cranked up, you know, a few times. I get to give him a little gas, you know. It's like, and you're like, come on. You give it a little gas. God's not like that. He doesn't have to be activated. He doesn't have to be warmed up. He doesn't have to get started. So by impassibility, we are not saying that God doesn't have emotions or feelings, whether that's joy and delight or pain and suffering. Rather, we're saying that no one or no created thing may impose suffering, pain, or any sort of distress on God in such a way that he experiences these things unwillingly. God has affections. He loves. He delights. He takes pleasure He took pleasure when Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He does not undergo changes in his emotional state the way I do with the Dallas Cowboys. But that doesn't mean that he is cold. He's compassionate, merciful, joyful. He has displeasure. He is grieved at sin. He is angry at sin. He is moved to pity, but he doesn't have these emotions like we do. We get acted upon by an outside agent that causes us to feel these things, but God doesn't. That's impassibility. Of course, there's a lot of mystery here. God doesn't change. He's not an emotional wreck, and yet our relationship with him is very dynamic, isn't it? You experienced that in worship when you were singing to him. You're not singing to a cold, distant God. Your relationship with him was very dynamic in that moment. His affections for us are real. His love and care is real. It's tangible, dynamic. It's this very real relationship that we have with God. He is not a robot. Alec Motier says his heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. That's true. That's real. It's not boring. It's not static. Our relationship with Jesus very much involves our affections and feelings, and it very much involves his too. Let me say something real quick about the incarnation of Jesus. In his humanity, Jesus did experience change in his emotions and passions, but he didn't experience that in his divinity. In his humanity, Jesus wept. He experienced joy, sadness, anger, and these emotions and feelings were caused by agents outside of himself, but that only happened in his humanity. This did not occur in his divine nature because God is without passion. So when we say God is without passions, we're talking about the nature of God, not the nature of Jesus' humanity. He very much experienced all kinds of emotions and feelings. A few more minutes here. We're going long. In all our relationships, we can do things to affect whether someone loves us. We do things that might affect Their love, we can be jerks and cause change in others by what we do. 
Why? Because we are passable beings. Agents outside of us affect us. We say things like what? You made me angry. You made me angry. When we say this, we show that we are passable creatures. Agents, peoples, things that are outside of us produce emotional change within us. When you drive through a roundabout in this city, at some point there will be someone who does not know how to drive in said roundabouts, and they will cause a change in you because you are a passable driver, a passable creature who is able to experience emotional change by creatures outside of you. And that can happen in roundabouts. Amen? You might even say something in a roundabout that you might not want to say in here. But God is not like this. The doctrine of divine impassibility is comforting because what Psalm 136, which is our call to worship today, says is true. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then, in case you're a little slow reading Psalm 136, it repeats this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, another 25 times to try to get the point to you. His steadfast love endures forever. God is love. It's his very being. And that's why his love endures forever. And that means that you don't have to try to do things to maintain his love. You don't have to read your Bible more to make him love you more, or pray more to make him love you more, or kill sin to make him love you more, or fast to make him love you more, or serve more to make him love you more. You don't have to try to move him to love you. It's not like you sin and God is angry and somehow if you repent for six hours and wallow in condemnation and beat yourself up, that somehow that is like giving God a Snickers candy bar that settles him down and now he's himself again and he will love you. No. He loves you from the fullness of his being perfectly. He loves you freely. As Hosea told us, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. The doctrine of divine impassibility means that God loves you with a never starting, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is good news, y'all. This is good news. So do what Psalm 136 encourages you to do. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's do that now. Jesus, we thank you that you just are who you are. And we just have to deal with it. And thankfully, your love, your compassion. And we don't have to try to work you up to get you to be this way. It's just who you are. The trouble is on our end. It's hard to receive your love. It's hard to receive your forgiveness. So thank you that you love us perfectly and that your love endures forever. Would you help that to cause change in us so that we would then go love and serve other people and tell them about the hope that we have in you? Help us. We ask in your name. Amen.